I guess when I go there, there's the visual, what am I seeing? What's happening around me? How is the sunlight hitting the boardwalk? And, and then like, how are the people using this space? Like what's my place in it? And how will I slot into this, this larger world here? Um, so I may have gone to draw the cyclone, but instead I ended up drawing the guy who's wearing a Mets hat, standing against like a blue and orange wall, like smoking a cigarette because like he told the story of what I'm experiencing more than the roller coaster. That's one of the most famous things of, of Coney Island would ever tell. Um, right. And again, now I've totally lost with the original question. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Quite accidentally, I promise, this incredible milestone has crept up on me. 49 episodes of the podcast include 39 artists and sketchers from all over the world. 40, if I can include myself. And 49 episodes total, about 92 hours of long-form conversation. It's amazing to think that so many people have given me so much of their time. And it's even more amazing to think that some of you have been with me for perhaps all of those 92 hours. If this identifies you, I'm not even really sure which one of us has the greater achievement. So please reach out and say hi in the discussion thread on my Substack. I would love to get to know you. There are some exciting plans I have after episode 50. If you're a listener in the Netherlands or Germany or somewhere in Western or Southern Europe, please also reach out to say hi. I may be visiting your area soon to maybe make a podcast on location. More details again on my Substack soon. Everything is just an idea. Anyway, to today's conversation. I'm speaking with Gavin Snyder, an artist in New York City, that I have admired for a long time. Gavin's work looks simultaneously simple and impossible to do. I can't really quite figure out how he does it, but I can see that everything fits together just right. What does it mean for Gavin to have come from Kansas to New York City? What does it mean to be an artist in New York City? How does Gavin find stillness in crowded places? How does he interact with his environment in order to elevate his art? Listen to Gavin's stories to understand how he sees his world and how he then chooses to depict it on his paper. Listen to me avoid all Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore references, which was, on my part, great restraint. Gavin is an artist, an architect, an illustrator, a designer, a musician, and also so much fun to speak to. I enjoyed listening to all of his stories, and I hope you do as well. So uh, I'm in Vancouver in Canada. Uh, we moved here just a little over a year ago. So I'm relatively new to the Pacific Northwest, new to Canada, new to this part of the world. And uh, before this, I was in Chicago through the first year of the pandemic. 
Oh, that's great. I mean, I love Chicago. I've only been to Vancouver once. Uh, beautiful place. Absolutely stunning. It is. So I, I've spent the last, uh, the, the five years before moving to Vancouver, I've spent it in the Midwest. Yeah. And that's been great. I was in Chicago. I was in uh, middle, right in the middle of Wisconsin for a while, then really? back to Chicago. And it's been a lot of fun being in this kind of place because the urban landscape completely changes, right? Chicago is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And then uh, rural Wisconsin is not urban anymore at all. Right. So the landscape changed a lot, but the geography did not change at all. It was completely flat all the way. Yeah. And now I'm in Vancouver and there are mountains and there are uphill sections and things like that everywhere. I'm going up and down and up and down and it's quite interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm from Kansas, so I understand the flat, uh, the flat earth. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, like just amazing for, for here in New York, just to get out of town, you know, you know, an hour away or even the northern tip of Manhattan. And you're like, oh, I'm in the mountains. This is really nice. <laughs> so... I feel your, uh, you know, that shift is like also a mental shift too. Um, moving from the Midwest to either coast, I guess. It is. I feel like I haven't uh, seen enough of the East Coast. <laughs> I've been to New York City, but actually I can't even think of another place on the East Coast that I've visited. I may yeah. not have visited any other places on the East Coast. I've been to DC. So I've been to DC and I've been to New York City and that's that's it. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, uh, there's so much of like, I think the cities are more densely packed in that part of the country, because of course, this is where the early settlements happened. And I think that would change so much of how cities function and how people live with each other. And I'm, I'm curious to see if there's any difference, because again, coming to America and coming to the Midwest was also very unique for me, because I wasn't used to the fact that, for example, in Wisconsin, it's considered normal if you drive an hour and a half to meet someone. Right. Like, 90, oh, okay, 90 miles. Right <laughs> yeah, 90 miles, 100 miles. And this is, this is it's okay. Not a big deal. But I, I didn't grow up like that. I didn't grow up in this kind of, with these kind of distances between things. And I think the East Coast might have been a little uh, easier for me to acclimatize to in that sense. Yeah, because if you drive an hour and a half, you're in a new, an entirely new metropolitan area. Uh, or else you're just in traffic in Queens and <laughs> you know, one or the other, you you either went nowhere or you went like, you know, across the whole Eastern seaboard. Uh, it's kind of like, well, just depends on the traffic. I always <laughs> like, I always miss driving because I don't have a car in the city. Right. Um, and then when I get home to Kansas, it's like, oh, I have like this open space and like, you know, I can get, I can almost get from like Kansas city to, to my hometown of in Mulvane in like two and a half hours and it's just like you're cruising and the music sounds great in the car and I just miss this open space but then I also remember how like demoralizing it is or like life um draining to be stuck in traffic and to be commuting and even I was recently in Portland and had that same feeling I was like oh my god what incredible place you know great nature great um you know restaurants and breweries and you're driving everywhere i was in the car the whole time like you know so it's this weird trade-off of like um openness versus enclosure i, I don't know it's nice to have both worlds and be able to enter one and, and move out of the other i i agree with that actually you mentioned uh being glad to go back to kansas because now you can get into a car and you can really go long distances mm -hmm. and uh my in, my first instinct is the opposite because 
I love being in a big city where I never need a car yeah. and I can walk to places and I can take uh, public transit to places. And New York City is, of course, a fantastic place for that. Yeah. And I think uh, I've disliked driving for a large part of my life. But when I came to America and I was exposed to the great American outdoors, mm. I kind of started to see the value of, you know, how how great it can be, how great a road trip can be. Right. But then when I moved to Wisconsin, it became a part of like a, ne a necessary part of life. And I had to drive even for, uh, you know, just for basic social occasions. And I don't, well, that, that phase of my life did get me into podcasts. And here we are today. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I feel like on the whole, I would rather, rather not drive. Yeah. But um, anyway, let me, let me, I, I forgot to welcome you to the show. Thank so you. let's, let's do that. <laughs> Hello, uh, Hello, hello, Gavin, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so delighted to speak with you. Thank you for giving me your time today. Uh, you're welcome. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, let's continue. Let's go back to what we were talking about before I had to break this for the hello. Um, you're also, you know, an outsider to New York City in a sense because you come from, and I like to, yeah. regardless of the geographical distance, you come from a different world where yeah. the rules are different, where people live differently. So I, I'm, I'm keen to explore this contrast a little bit. Tell me a little bit about how, how long you've spent in New York City. How do you find this city? And uh, what are you doing these days? So I've been in New York since 2015. Um, <clears throat> before that, I was, in, I was in Kansas and then Kansas City, which is actually Missouri. Uh, I'll be quick to, to let everybody know. Um, for about six years before that. Um, and I was working in architecture. Uh, and came to New York with an architecture job and, uh, sort of at the time, um, was doing a lot of illustrations, um, and kind of sort of this discovery, this finding of myself. I recently started to do what I know now as fervent sketching. Um, but then I don't think I had a name for it or maybe I did in Kansas city, but not at first. I just remember this one day, uh, where I was sort of like, I wouldn't say it an artistic rut, but just sort of artistically hungry. And a lot of the work I had been doing was sort of, you know, after my, after my job, I was working 50, 60 hours a week in this architecture firm, kind of a very high intensity, high energy, high, very demanding place. And I would want to paint or I want to draw, but there was sort of the only place I could do it was, you know, in my desk at home or, or, you know, I'd go to the, the art and architecture library at the Casey Art Institute and kind of, you know, just lose myself in books and paint and paint like, you know, things I saw from books. And I was doing concert posters. I was doing, um, you know, some, some different paintings of, of buildings around town, um, from photo reference. Um, but then I remember one afternoon, just beautiful. I'm like, you know, I'm going to explore. Drove over to Kansas city, Kansas, uh, which is across the river from Kansas city, Missouri. And just kind of found a neighborhood I'd never been to before. Um, and there in this neighborhood, there's this sort of abandoned, it's called the Sour Castle. Um, and it was brought over from Germany in, I think the late 1800s, uh, very eerie, very, very ornate, very like kind of large. It looks like a haunted house. And there were all these legends. I, I later found out that the neighborhood kids told, you know, about this house who lived there and who had died there, you know, 
you stay long enough on the, on the lawn, you'll see a ghost on the balcony. Anyway, I didn't really know all that, but I just stood outside the chain link fence, this, you know, 20 keep out signs and just stood by the road. Um, and drew on a notebook with a pen and then, you know, photographed the, the painting or the, rather the drawing after I was done. And I was like, wow, that was satisfying. You know, I was outside. I was really, really seen in a way that I hadn't necessarily thought about before, you know, when you're drawing from a photo or from, a, you know, from your computer or from, you know, some visual reference that you, you found, um, you know, in a book or on the internet, there's really no, um, hierarchy of scale. There's really no, you know, you kind of have all the information right there at equal level, but when you're drawing on site, I was like, oh, well, wow. like, you know, the shadows changing, the lights changing, uh, what I see as important you know, in this, in this visual composition is exactly what my eye sees. And so it was, it was really actually, it was, it was hard. It was really difficult. Um, just the pen outline almost of this, but I was, remember leaving so satisfied, like, oh, I think I had a breakthrough. And then I remember sharing it. I, it was on Facebook at the time. I'm not even on Facebook anymore, but I think that was, this was pre Instagram or else I didn't know about Instagram. Don't know if I was on Twitter. Don't really know what, what else there was. It certainly wasn't TikTok, and. I was like, oh, wow, I got like, you know, all these comments. People were like, you know, wow, like, I really feel like I'm there. I really feel like I'm, you know, experiencing this with you. And I was like, okay, okay. And then come to, come to find out later that, you know, this whole internet community had been building around, you know, plein air painting, plein air sketching, um, urban sketching. And I really, I really like took hold of that in terms of what I learned from it in that experience being there on site and also the community I learned about from it, um, which sort of expanded my art in a really big way. So fast forward to your question, um, about coming to New York, this was a couple of years later that I moved to New York when kind of like, I felt like I was really starting to become and figure out what sort of art I wanted to create in Kansas city. I was going around all these neighborhoods and Kansas city has incredible historic buildings, a really, a really sort of, um, interesting building stock, you know, there was, um, the stockyards were there. So there was, you know, this, the beef industry and, and, and a lot of, you know, agriculture sort of agriculture and commerce sort of centralized around this place. And, you know, at a time it was a boom town, you know, one of the biggest cities in America. And then it never really fell into decay so much as it, you know, parts of the city, you know, the, the energy shifted around. So these different neighborhoods were either, you know, knocked out by the highways or separated by, um, you know, the highway construction or otherwise sort of neglected at times, but a lot of the buildings were, were kept, you know, and, and sort of re reinterpreted. So I, I sort of, I was going out to, um, gosh, you know, na neighborhoods like the West side or neighborhoods like the West bottoms or, um, the city market, river market, uh, Armordale, all these places and sort of finding just buildings that really caught my eye. And then I'd learn the story of the building. Oftentimes after a common eye, I'd go back and, you know, do a little bit of research, um, say, oh, wow, you know, this church, um, you know, was here since 1860 and it's the, um, you know, the Mexican American church of, of this, you know, that, of this community that's historically been in Kansas city. And so I, I would, you know, kind of use it as a process of discovery beyond the drawing too. Um, I didn't know how that would translate to New York when I came. Uh, I did, I did know that I would keep painting and keep drawing. Um, but what kind of shifted to New York 
was while in Kansas City, this pursuit was really solitary and kind of a way to like, you know, get out of my head to depart from like the work day for a little bit. And on a Sunday afternoon, just drive to like the far reaches of a place I'd never been in New York. It at times became this totally social activity where like people are coming up and talking to you and you're meeting like, you know, dozens, if not, you know, a hundred people on the street while you're sitting there painting. Um, <laughs> and so it sort of became like a hyper social activity, whereas before it was sort of an isolated thing. And then again, like you can also use New York. I, I can use, you know, painting and drawing in New York as I did in Kansas City, where depending on where you go, you may not see another soul, you know, go out to, um, you know, somewhere, uh, along the Harlem river and, and you know, the far north tip of Manhattan, um, I'd stand by it, you know, standing under a trade track or under the Henry Hudson bridge. I remember just thinking like, wow, you know, I'm really technically in the middle of the biggest city in America, but I feel like I'm the only person here. Like I just see a train and maybe a couple of boats, but nobody's here. Um, and that's, that's the great thing about New York is it's so vast and so big and so expansive. Right. You can really lose yourself in that way. You can either lose yourself in a sea of people or you can truly lose yourself in, um, you know, a place that you'll never see anybody else at. So I think that's like the beauty of that was sort of the transfer transformative thing for New York is not only are there endless amounts of things to draw, but there's endless environments that you're, you know, you're in while you're drawing and while you're painting. Right. Right. Uh, now, a, a number of threads that I'll pull on from here, yeah. but uh, the the one that intrigues me just now is, uh, you know, being alone in a busy place or finding a place that is uh, devoid of other people in a densely packed part of the world like New York City. Is this something that, is this something you enjoy? Coming from Kansas, you've been in less dense places. What is the hyper-social sketching environment of New York like for you when you have people peering over your shoulder or you have people good-naturedly asking you what you're doing and things like that? Do you always enjoy these interactions? Yeah, I, I, I like both. And I, I actually probably prefer the, the people kind of being surrounded by a crowd of people. And sometimes you, you will be passed by hundreds of people and nobody will say a word and, and you know, whatever the energy um, or the neighborhood or really, um, or really just, you know, people's, I guess, the the collective mood sometimes will be like, oh, we should leave him alone. Like he, he probably is, you know, busy or he's working or he doesn't want to be bothered. And other times no such luck. But I, I quite like when people come up and talk to me because A, it, it takes off some of the pressure that I'm putting on myself to create this beautiful, spectacular artwork, which is, you know, the hardest thing, right? It's loosening up and letting yourself explore because that's when the, I guess that's when the, the breakthroughs happen. It's when I'm, I am experiencing a little bit of discomfort or I'm not quite, you know, sure how to approach a scene. You know, that's how the, that's how breakthroughs happen. That's how my best pieces um, happen. And oftentimes, you know, having somebody talking to you over your shoulder, telling you about their life or, or asking you questions about what you're doing, um, kind of, allows you to have those breakthroughs because you're, you're not so focused on making this like perfect pristine work of art. You're, you're, you have that half attention, which I think is so important, um, as an artist, uh, like you don't necessarily want to know what you're doing all the time. You want your, your, 
your subconscious or maybe even your unconscious to sort of bubble up and, and, and be out there on the page. It's, it's like, it's like writing music. Um, you, you kind of, if you, if you're just relying on the things that are right in front of you, you're always going to be like creating the same piece of music. You're always going to be writing the same thing. There, there has to be something from inside. I think other people kind of help bring that out in me. Um, and they, I mean, they just tell fascinating stories. That's another thing I love. And there's this, this openness that New Yorkers have. Like I really couldn't, can't believe that there's this, <laughs> this reputation of, of New Yorkers as being like sort of standoffish or like rude. I mean, it's, they're the friendliest people like on earth, like, and they'll talk to you about anything, anytime, you know? And of course we, we meet, not all the encounters are good. I've certainly been like, um, say threatened, um, during these times, you know, just like, you know, somebody gets really aggressive and like gets in my face and like, while I'm painting, it's happened a couple of times, but I'm like, mm. you know, he was just having a bad day. This really has nothing to do with me. Um, <laughs> right. I just happened to be the next person this guy walked on. And that's, you yeah. know, once out of every, you know, thousand of interactions that, that sure. you, it does like a negative one happen. You make an interesting point about the the discomfort or let's say the distraction of other people and how it can, you know, so I, a couple of things, like I often talk about the importance of constraints when we're yeah. making art and drawing outdoors is a great way to impose constraints upon yourself because yeah. just simply the place you're sitting at is, uh, can, can have so many variables to it, like the weather outside or whether you're comfortable, whether you are comfortable in crowds and how much time you have on hand, all, all of these. And the fact that your subject could be dynamic, it could be boats, it could be people and things are changing. So there are all of these constraints of time, of comfort, and they manifest in your art in lots of different ways. And while you were talking about, you know, this thing of being distracted and having half your attention taken by somebody and that leading to better work, I was thinking about this book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm. And uh, he talks about uh, how uh, when we think fast and when we think slow, he divides the brain into two systems, which he calls predictably system one and system two. Mm -hmm. uh, system one is our intuition and our instincts. It's when we do things on autopilot. And system two is when, suppose we're not very good at doing something, we're doing something that's new or something that's challenging us. Then we think very consciously about each and every step in that process. And system yeah. two is is heavy calculation. If I give you a tough mathematical sum, like 523 divided by 47, you will have to use system two to do it because you'll have to walk through every step. But for several other things that might be easier to you, that you might be skilled at, that everyone might be skilled at, we naturally resort to system one. So something like driving down a long highway and you reach the end and you, you pull into your driveway and then suddenly you blink and you can't remember the drive at all, <laughs> yeah, how yeah. you got there, because everything was done by system one. And I personally have had a couple of moments of freaking out when I thought, what if I did something terribly wrong? I can't <laughs> even remember how I drive, drove all the way down here. It wasn't you doing it. It was system one. Don't worry. Right. That's, that's a fascinating way to, to group the world and think about the world. Um, and I think you're using like those, when, when you're painting those two systems, seem to be like crossing over one another constantly right so for instance like one of the you, like one of the constraints or one of the times i think like i would say system two took over i you know pretty recently i was back in kansas city and uh staying at my brother's apartment 
And I woke up like, you know, I hadn't catch a flight back to New York uh, that afternoon. So I was like, oh man, if I, I want to paint, you know, my favorite place to paint, but gosh, if I do it, I have to do it before everybody wakes up because I'm going to brunch with my family. You know, there's not going to be any time. So I did like, I, I wake up 7 a.m., the whole house is asleep. I get in the, like, yeah, call a car, take an Uber down to um, the uh, Liberty Memorial, which is this vantage point that looks out across the entire um, skyline of Kansas City. I've painted it a dozen times. It's my favorite place, you know, sort of the iconic view. And of course, it's closed. Like, oh, okay, it's closed for repairs. There's snow and ice everywhere. I was right. like, oh, actually, and, and um, you know, but there's also the, one of the other iconic buildings in Kansas City that you can see from the Liberty Memorial is the Western Autumn Building. And it's an apartment, kind of how the Flatiron is, you know, this symbolic um, structure in New York. The Western Auto Building is that, like that to Kansas City. There's a beautiful like rooftop sign with this curving arrow. Um, it was actually the, the Coca-Cola Building first, and it was built to curve around the railroad track. So the whole the facade has this beautiful bid um, and sort of comes to these these sharp points, and then it has this iconic sign on top. So I saw it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to, it's beckoning me. I'm, I'm going to walk down the hill through the snow and I'm going to paint it. And I found this really great vantage point and I'm sitting there painting and I'm like, um, it's 25 degrees right now and I'm using watercolor and you know, I'm, I, I usually kind of have this limit, like 40 degrees is anything under 40 degrees is not a paint between 40 and 50 is pretty uncomfortable. Anything below 50, if you're outside for longer, like you don't notice it just walking around, but your hands just start to hurt after, you know, about 30, 45 minutes. So like if you can do a painting under an hour, anything below 50 is fine for me. Or if you bring gloves and are properly tired. But here it was, it's 25 degrees. It was probably a wind chill of 20 or something. And my paint is freezing on the page as it's coming out of my, off my brush. And so I'm like, oh, I really have to quit. I'm going to call my brother, have him come pick me up, just go to brunch, warm up my hands. This is terrible. What a dumb idea. I just, you know, I was too ambitious this morning. But, you know, my brother's still asleep. So I'm like, oh, you know, I guess I'm going to push through. Like the sunlight was hitting the building just right. And I'm like, it's kind of a perfect scene. So what I did was just like, okay, this paint is really gummy. I don't know what's going to happen. Like it's not flowing. Like, you know, the best thing about watercolor is how it flows, right? And it's this ease of movement across the page. Well, this was like painting with sludge, you know, it didn't, didn't flow. It looked like shit. It all sort of was ready together. But then I like saw like where I had done a wash for the parking lot. I saw ice crystals forming on the page. I was like, oh, okay. So something could happen here. You know, I'm painting this parking lot that's covered in ice. And now I'm actually using water to paint this and it's becoming ice. I'm like, this might be. Okay, so I just did it and, you know, kind of finished it, called my brother. He came, picked me up. I didn't really look at the painting until uh, we got back from breakfast. And then all the colors had kind of run together. And I was like, this might be the best painting I've ever painted in my life. <laughs> this was a breakthrough. This was incredible. I couldn't have done it if I tried, you know. I couldn't, right. I couldn't have made this piece of art in my studio. It would have been impossible. And I also probably can't recreate it. Um but somehow these ice crystals form and the way that the colors just blended together because they couldn't, because they were, they were kind of like sludgy and icy after they melted, they all like washed together. I was like, wow. Okay. A lesson like push through the discomfort, like don't 
just because it feels uncomfortable in the moment, um, just because, you know, you may hate the thing on the page. Honestly, the paintings I hate the most while I'm painting them oftentimes, you know, turn out to be like, oh, that was because that was like, I was doing something new and different and I was learning something. And wow. I mean, what a transformative experience to be able to spend just an hour outside the cool and learn something at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you know, when it, you know, when else would I do that? I never, you know, I would. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, and so, so true. Like, I think there is this element of discovery that comes in when we're urban sketching. And especially if you use watercolors, because you like exactly as you mentioned, the temperature, the weather, the, uh, the the different conditions, the impact that they have on the water, on the flow of the colors. Yeah. These are things that you cannot predict before. These are things you cannot predict during. And as a result, there is something that happens to your work that you cannot account for. And sometimes that thing is magical. It takes it far beyond what you could have intentionally ever, ever done to that page. Like even yeah. if you had complete control over the dynamics, this is not something you could have done. I also love what you said about pushing through because this happens so much to me. Like I'm some days I'm 60, 70% through my drawings and I'm not really seeing it. The, 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 I'm, not, I'm not getting that, that feeling of joy that I get instantly from knowing that I'm doing it. It's going well. Right, right. But uh, so two two kinds of things happen. One is somehow in the last little bit of the drawing, I'll rescue it. Something will happen. Some kind of new subject will occur to me or a new focal point will you know manifest itself. And suddenly the drawing is completely changed and it looks great. But more often it's what you mentioned, like you have to give it a day or two. And here's what I think. I think that when we are drawing, we have these ideas of what we wanted it to be. Like when you sat down to draw that, the Western Auto building, you had this sense of what you wanted that page to look like, Yeah. which it didn't quite pan out that way. And so in the moment that you're painting, you're constantly comparing it to that vision and that vision is stuck in your mind. And so this painting is quote unquote disappointing. But if you look at it the next day or a couple of days later, you shed that previous image and then you start to see the painting just as it is. That's, that's a really, really wonderful um, observation. And what a way to like, look at life. I mean, not to take it too metaphorically here, but how hard are we, you know, how much do we rely upon like expectation um, of what we thought we were supposed to be doing in this moment at this time. And if, you know, you can just take a step back and sort of be like, Oh, well, wow, I'm here. It's not what I expected, but okay. Like, let's do this. You know, I, gosh, if only it were that easy, you know, but you don't, sometimes <laughs> you don't know until you look back a few days later and Absolutely. understand it. Right. Um, but it's a really great, yeah, it's a, that's a, that's a really like lovely observation and, and way to look at art and the world. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, um, how you accidentally came across urban sketching and you started to do it one fine day and you discovered these things about it. Now, you you did go into details about how it led to you exploring more of your environment and going out of your way to visit places that were interesting and then sketching on location. But since you were already making art at that point, you mentioned you were designing posters. I'm curious to know what it did purely to the artist in you to be drawing on location versus the practices you'd been doing before this, drawing from references, drawing from looking at something on your computer. I think um, what what was initially a, a very product-based um, activity, like I am 
I'm trying to create a beautiful final product, um, shifted to become more of a process-based activity where I'm having an experience. I'm enjoying a moment. Um, so instead of, instead of relying on like, Hey, I'm sitting down to make an artwork, you know, I can't remember who said this. My, my brother Grant is always talking. He, he kind of lives by this or tries to live by this mantra of you're not, you're not making a drawing or making a painting or making a comic. You're having a drawing session. Like <laughs> what it did is it shifted from product to process. And like, actually the result, the final product, when you enjoy the process and you really aren't thinking about, of course you're thinking about it, but you're less focused on the result is so much more engaging and so much more interesting. And, you know, I think we do things that, you know, people respond to and people respond to things that we find joy in. Um, and we really take, you know, put our passion into, and I think people see the process, like when, when I, when I paint, um, or when I see another, you know, another artist, um, share their work of, of something they've created on site. You really do appreciate the process and the passion behind it. And like, it's very, I think it very, like, I feel very drawn to and connected to that. And I think people, um, you know, on, on the best day to see that in my work and I see that in other people's work. Um, so that's, that's what it helped me do was be, be more focused on art, art as a practice rather than art as, you know, art as creating this like perfect object. Um, right. Which is hard to, it's still hard to remember that. It's not always easy to let yourself just kind of be taken away by that because we do want to make things that are beautiful and make things that are meaningful and good. Um, <clears throat> but of course, the good is the enemy of the great. Is this the saying? I'm <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the great is the enemy of the good. Well, yeah, exactly what or, you oh, said. I think, I think I, actually we're both wrong. The, the quote is, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> the product is the enemy of the process in this case. I love that you framed it this way because uh, I've also found it uh, that, and I recently expressed this in a in an episode also that I find that the best work I do for clients is when I completely forget about them and I don't oh, have them. You're doing it for yourself, right? Yeah. What 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 kind of art? Do you, uh, what's your main artistic practice? Well, uh, my my style is that I work with fountain pens and I work with ink, so I make ink drawings. Oh, cool. And. I tend to draw people more than I draw buildings and it has to do with how I see cities. So I grew up in a very dense part of the world. I grew up in Calcutta in Eastern India. Mm -hmm. So this is a city of millions of people and I've always, always only seen the city as a place packed with people doing things. Yeah. So when I moved for the first time, I moved out of my country. I moved to the Netherlands to study for a master's degree. And after that, I would come to the US for research. And later, I would come to the US in order to become a full-time creative. But every time I moved, I used to I used to look for these kind of markers. I used to subconsciously, and I'm sort of back calculating now, what was I doing then? But I think I was looking for how do people 
behave in this city? How do they conduct themselves in these places? Like something as simple as a bus stop in Calcutta versus a bus stop in the Netherlands is a completely different world. Yeah. We don't queue up so nicely at bus stops in my city. Yeah. <laughs> the buses don't stop as neatly and as quietly as they do in the Netherlands. So I started to notice these kind of things. And when I moved to the US, my intrigue was that I was in this quote unquote in the new world and I was trying to understand how it works because I started to feel like an outsider and I wanted to find ways that I would feel less like an outsider. Yeah. A big city like Chicago makes that easy because Chicago is so diverse and it's full of people from all over the world speaking their languages, doing their things. So it's easy to blend into the crowd, which is, yeah. I think, what I was looking for. But I stuck out when I moved to Wisconsin and it was not possible for me to blend into a crowd anymore. Right. I was going to stick out in any crowd. So then I started to feel this need to find things that are common. Now that I know so immediately the things that are different between me and everyone else around me, how can I find things that are common because mm. I have to live in this place and I have to make peace with being in a cafe and being comfortable in a cafe knowing that there's nobody else around me who looks like me. Yeah. So then this process of drawing and the art, I think the internal motivation shifted a little bit. I started to observe human activity as a way to see how can I relate them in my world. The fact that someone who is nothing like me is ordering the same cafe, uh, coffee as me in this cafe. That's a point of interest. Suddenly I find this person interesting. Maybe I can draw them while they're ordering their coffee. And I started to capture moments of life in this manner. And quite accidentally, I found that people cared about my drawing because, again, I assumed that being an outsider, my view of this world is surely less significant. What do I know? But that exactly was the superpower. People yeah. wanted to see their world, which was not, you know, it's uh, I'm, I was living in this town called Eau Claire in Wisconsin. Mm. And if you don't know where it is, but you point your finger right in the middle of Wisconsin, you will accidentally hit Eau Claire. And uh, so I started to make art of this town, which was not, it's not a big town. It's not a big city. So it's not got those big hashtags associated with it, right? Small, it's associated with this, what, the musician Bodie Ver, is he from? Exactly, right. <laughs> the calling he's, card. <laughs> he's the local, he's a local hero. He's, yeah. A lot of people talk about him. I've never seen him, but maybe I have, and I just don't know what he there looks like. There you go. Like. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> But exactly this, it's only 60 odd thousand people. So there right. isn't anything that's really big and iconic, so to right. say. So I'm starting to draw these very ordinary, quote unquote, ordinary things and starting to find that people care about a new person looking at these ordinary things that have been around for so long. And that's how I started to sell art. Uh, people now commission me just for the the way that I can refresh their their vision of things that they see. And this is my pitch to them also that I want to draw something. If I, if you ask me to draw your business, I want to draw the view that you have going into it or the view that any pedestrian has of this building. So I want to draw it on the street. I want to draw it on location. If you want, if I've been commissioned to draw cafes and I say that I'm, I want to sit in the cafe or I want to be behind the counter so I can take either the barista's point of view or a customer's point of view, because this is how this cafe is seen. This yeah, is how the cat, like, I don't want to have a sterile view from outside from Google street view or something like that, if I can help it, because right. 
driving past the cafe is not how people see the cafe. That's not how, this is not the memory of, of it that's stuck in their heads. This is just the external image because we're going to look it up on Google Maps and that's going to be an outside picture and it has to be promoted. So that has to be an outside picture. There, the, there are these images that are associated with things that are very impersonal. Yeah. Like they don't relate to our consumption or our enjoyment of that place or that or that thing. Yeah. And I try to talk about the, this other side. What is the way in which we consume, quote unquote, a cafe? What is the way that we enjoy the time we spend there? And that's how I try to show. That's the point of view that I try to give through my commissions to clients and Fortunately, people are starting to see that they That's like it. That's great. Too. It's the experience. And again, it goes back to the, it's the experience of being there rather than the object of the thing, right? When you're, you're capturing an experience versus an object, people respond to that. And I, yeah. that's, I see that. I, I, that sounds, I love that. That sounds yeah. amazing, you know, exactly how you described it. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, early when we were talking about uh, just you starting to do urban sketching, you mentioned creative hunger. And that's not something everybody has. That's something that I believe we cultivate through yeah. the hobbies and through the things that we spend our time doing. To recognize creative hunger in ourselves is also a rare habit. A lot of people have it, but they can't narrow it down to what it is or what they need to feed to yeah. save this hunger. And I believe a lot of it has to do with the kind of habits and playtime and hobbies we develop when we are young. So. Tell me a little bit about this. Growing up with Grant, uh, your twin brother, Grant, who is also a fantastic cartoonist. I'm a big fan of incidental comics. Tell me about your childhood interest in art. How did it express itself? How did the two of you express your creativity? Yeah, it's, it is so much about, um, I think, where I'm at currently um, is, is from a young age. Like my parents, Tim and Rita, always encouraged like, that artistic expression in, in myself and Grant and my other two brothers, Jake and Judd as well. Um, and we, you know, Grant and I, from, you know, the, the story I, I, I tell is about uh, the easel, which my, my dad made. Uh, I, I told this story a little while ago. I was like, yeah, my dad bought us an easel. And he called me. He's like, no, I made that easel in my workshop. <laughs> I didn't buy it, which is an important part of the process or an important part of the story that I left right. out because my parents, they, they, um, the reason they cultivated and sort of nurtured that artistic impulse is because they're artists themselves. Uh, my father's a woodworker and my mother's a quilter. And while they're not drawing the same or painting the same things my brother and I do, um, they're still, they're still artists, you know, they're, and they're, they're gardeners. They're, you know, they're, they're working with the land. So it's really something that we sort of saw. I don't think I ever really connected the dots until now. Like the things I, I talked to my parents about when, um, when I call Elmer, our projects, Hey, what are you working on dad? You know, oh, I'm building a, a, a bank for, um, you know, <clears throat> a bank for the, for the kids in the shape of a dinosaur or, Hey mom, what are you working on? Oh, I'm designing, you know, a t-shirt quilt or a baby quilt for your cousin's baby. You know, it's like, oh, wow. Like this pursuit has kind of been there my whole life. I really take it for granted when I shouldn't. And so we have this easel. With, we would, you know, get these big sheets of, of computer paper. I can still picture the paper now. On, on one side, it had, um, you know, like a tear-off edge with little, with, with small holes, uh, perforating holes in it. And then the other side, it had um, these kind of like very light green lines. 
It's a very old school, like eighties computer <laughs> yeah. paper. My dad was a software engineer. I'm sure he just, you know, found a role, a, a role in his office. And we would create these incredible worlds, um, with pen and marker and crayon and just like tell stories. And, and Grant and I were always telling stories to each other, even like falling asleep at night. We share a room until we were 18 and we, you know, we, we were telling stories and, um, that sort of was, you know, like that, that I look back at those drawings now that I did when I was four years old and I'm like, ah, never again will I capture this creative energy and spirit. I mean, just, you know, asteroids and aliens and pirates and sort of this sort of crazy amalgamation of all these different like action scenes and exploding airplanes. And then there's a UFO and uh, so super fun. I, and I know we were just, we were telling a story about it as we drew and, mm-hmm. you know, as with most things in life, you keep a steady pace you, and then you, you forget some things and then you have to relearn them. So whereas like it, in high school, we were, we were both kind of doing like, I don't know, I was doing these hyper intricately detailed pencil drawings, portraits of athletes and of, mm-hmm. of people in the town. I, I was even like, you know, doing like commissions did it. For like 50 bucks. Oh yeah. I'll, I'll do a pencil drawing of, of your baby photo, you know, things like that. I remember hanging up an advertisement at the, the grocery store in my hometown. Other than like, I would paint, I will, I will paint your portrait. You know, it was just like, <laughs> oh man, I don't think I could even draw what I was drawing back then. But like, this is just these miserable, like highly intricate, like really like detailed, like perfect photographic reproductions. Um, and then I kind of burned out on, on that, you know, and I, I went to architecture school. I learned, you know, sort of technical drawing of a lot of the stuff we, we did in the first two years of architecture school before we were able to, or before they really like introduced CAD and introduced like 3D drafting programs or 3D modeling programs, we were required to hand draw everything, which of course I was just, you know, I was a whiz and I was great at it, but it's sort of old or deadened my interest in creating um art for myself just because mm-hmm. when you're drawing for you know for your work it's hard to find time or energy to um to do to do that for yourself so what i put my energy into was was learning an instrument learning guitar and starting to play with a band and starting to make music with with some of my friends in college and that was kind of where i focused my beginner mind on and then at some point we got you know Good enough, or at least um, we've had the confidence that may, you know maybe unearned confidence to start playing shows. And then I started drawing posters for my band for those shows. And then I was able to like, oh, I was able to totally let loose and just do some, you know, go back to like the aliens and the spaceships and the monsters and the you know giant sloth stomping on the city or whatever it was. <laughs> you know, some, it didn't matter. It could be something stupid, just whatever caught the eye of um, you know people in the you know, on the street in, in downtown Lawrence, Kansas, um, that was the goal. So I was able to sort of recapture this, this spark and this sort of fun and, and, and drawing that I had previously, um, not let go, but focus my energy elsewhere when I, when I started architecture school. Right. Right. Uh, you, you know, it sounds to me a little bit like this time. I think it happens to everybody. We grow up and then we, our tastes become externalized. So I think at a point it becomes product over process. And I often think that, you know, when we are very young, there's no concept of product. 
there is only process right. and we only know what we enjoy doing because yeah. the i i feel like i i drew so much as a kid like i used oil pastels and yeah. paints and uh, pencils and i don't think i really looked at my drawings i just made one and then i made another yeah. and then i made another because i was doing what i wanted to do and it wasn't about looking back at it or imagine i i went back home recently and i looked at my drawings and 8 year old me drew these gi joes with uh like a poster of gi joes that i must have seen somewhere with planes uh-huh. flying over them and captain flint or someone like something like that and he was right in the middle and all of these people around like it's a very cinematic poster that i drew and i can't believe that i did this at that age because the colors and the way that i'm just you know the way that i'm pulling my lines i'm now looking at it as an adult and i'm seeing the freedom i had with those devices my brother and i my younger brother and i would also make a lot of art but i think in your case it's almost collaborative art we did our own separate art we played with gi joes all the time and we yeah. destroyed the world at the end of our games and then he would i would draw gi joes and he was the one drawing asteroids crashing into planets and mm-hmm. a lot of his a lot of his young art actually is asteroids crashing into planets there's a little <laughs> bit of there's a little bit of psychology we need to go I, into I know, I, what is that about i mean we're it's like the the concern for our own mortality uh that we have our whole life and then as a kid you hear that all the life on earth was wiped out by an asteroid that's good that's going to happen again obviously how how can we are we just going about our day with you know when is the second asteroid coming i mean what a like <laughs> what a story of like uh of of such you know epic proportions um to learn as a kid uh i you know and i was obsessed with dinosaurs uh i was just totally into every bit of the natural world um whether it was bird watching or collecting um fossils or shells or you know learning about animals um and of course dinosaurs like you know a lot of kids get hooked by it and and grant and i were the same way where our room was plastered in dinosaurs um so i'm not really sure where i was going with that but <laughs> i'm curious though is isn't if i'm not wrong kansas has a lot of uh, paleontology sites doesn't it yeah so kansas was an inland sea um at some point i'm not you know i hope no or i i hope actually some a paleontologist or an archaeologist is listening so they can you know give me some actual information here i did research on it one time maybe but but basically you know um it was an inland sea so what you'll find is that uh and it was a shallow sea so there are deposits of um you know sea creatures ichthyosaurs sharks um and you'll find them in like basically these uh the sediment of the the rocking the rocks and outcroppings that are now you know dot parts of kansas and on the limestones um you'll find fossils and sort of uh a lot of like evidence of that sea life and i, I remember going to like a place called castle rock kansas and with, with my grandparents and parents when we were very young and gosh i think somebody found a shark tooth you know buried in the rock in the middle of this you know prairie and you're just like i mean this is just the the coolest thing that could ever happen to you as a kid you're just because you, you think about um just how the world's changed and, and and you know just how incredible like it is that we're, we're even here at all i think that as a kid you're really open to that sense of wonder um and as an adult, you sort of either try to spend like we are, are like habitually reminded of it, or you try to recapture it because you know it's not always a part of your everyday life unless you seek it out. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah such a good point um now we were talking about high school and you mentioned also studying architecture tell me a little bit about how this happened how did your interests uh, lead towards architecture what did what were you thinking of uh, the uh, you know the, the things you wanted to do and what were these inspirations see it's funny to actually look back at it now and think that when you're 17 or 18 years old you could know anything about yourself <laughs> but of course we i think to a certain extent we arrive with parts of us fully formed our personality who we are and some things you know are, of course are changed by the way we're, we're brought up in our life experiences but you know sometimes i see it with my brother's kids like their personalities are fully are, are sort of fully there already and you know pre-existing even though they're like you know two or three years old um, it's really funny to see the difference at that age and i think that i just was like oh i like drawing what is, what profession draws uh, an artist? Oh, I can't be an artist. It's not a real job. So <laughs> I'm going to be uh, an architect because architects draw and presumably you use math too, which is completely untrue, by the way. I mean, you use math to like maybe addition and subtraction. <laughs> That's about the extent of math you <laughs> use in architecture. Um, but uh, I thought somehow that would be like a reasonable profession to go into without really having any passion for buildings or the built environment um more just thinking would i do well draw what profession does that architecture i don't know i didn't even consider graphic design or or graphic art as a profession which i think has been nice to come about um the art on my own terms actually and not sort of have a um i guess a technical background or a uh, background in art education I don't really know what that, how that would have shifted my work. I'm sure it would have shifted it quite a bit, actually, to have that sort of nurture. Um, but sort of everything I, I do now is something I, I taught myself, or I, a thread I just pulled on and, and saw to, to, to see where it went or what unraveled or um, what was at the end of that thread. Uh, and so the architecture is funny because it's really become my relationship to it has shifted. Um, many times over, you know, over the course of, of college through, um, through currently, I, I still work as an architect. Um, I, I really split my time 50, 50 between architecture and between, um, my artwork. And so my relationships transformed into a very, it's very healthy thing where I'm actually interested in the built world, creating things that, that are functional, um, that are you're really solving problems and, and, and learning about um, a lot of technical things and learning and thinking about the way we live. And I love having that part of the brain versus my artistic brain, which still, you know, is about the way we live. It is sort of a study of the built world, but in a completely different way in a much, I would say, sometimes a looser way, but also sometimes in a more straightforward way, as in you're just, you're, I'm literally there documenting what I see around me. Um, and I love how I've been able to come to a place and it's taken me a long time and it hasn't necessarily been easy where both these, these worlds can coexist, the left brain and right brain, so to speak. And sometimes they overlap and other times they, they just run parallel to one another. Um, and other times one threatens to take over the other one. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, of tension between those two, but as I, you know, as I think about art, I think in a professional way, in, in your professional life, a little bit of tension is good because it, it does make you think about what you want um 
and what your goals are for your, for your, for your, you know, future, but also for your day-to-day life. And I'm a person who focuses, um, on my day-to-day life quite a bit, often at the expense of my future. I'm really all about the <laughs> out here. And which is why I love painting because it's the most place between painting and creating music. Those are the two times when I'm like, I'm here. I'm only here. Now is now like, this is, you know, this is what I'm fully devoting all my attention and, and, and focus to, um, which is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well said because I, and I relate with it because, um, even for me, I'm, I feel like my mind is always distracted until the moment I touch the pen to the paper. And yeah. then for the next hour or an hour and a half, I am here and I don't think about being anywhere else or being in any other time. Yeah. And that feeling of being present is part of the gift of urban sketching for me and why I have to do it. And yeah. it is so not related to how well I draw. And I often meet people who talk about, you know, like uh, you mentioned people peering over your shoulder to to tell you about, you know, to tell you about your work or to just uh, make themselves heard as they're passing by. I feel like so many people feel the need to say something to an adult person pursuing art. And often the thing they say is that I used to do this, but Me, I don't man. anymore. <laughs> and uh, I, I now I'm thinking about what you said about, you know, not being educated in the subject. And that's also fascinating to me because I never had the chance to be educated as an artist. Uh, growing up, I also heard similar to what you said that, you know, art is not a career. Art is something that yeah. you like and it's a hobby and you a should hobby. do it. Sure, you should do it. But don't uh, let's not get too serious about this. We need to be a little practical about things. So mm-hmm. I ended up becoming an engineer. And by luck, by sheer luck, I ended up becoming a mechanical engineer, which mm. worked so well for me because I ended up doing a lot of drawing as well. And I ended up thinking visually about my world, which I think mechanical engineering lends itself to a visual understanding of the world in a yeah. more literal sense than other forms of more abstract engineering like computers or electronics. You mentioned being 17 and not quite knowing what you want to do. And just knowing a few things that you like to do. And that's exactly it. Like asking people to decide their lives at 17 is so absurd because most of us just have a first draft of an idea and that is already polluted by what people around you tell you that you should be doing. And you feel this peer pressure and various other obligations and constraints upon you. So people who find then a way to keep art in their lives are very interesting to me because they have a very clear idea of why they want to do this. And it has nothing to do with, I'm going to make a job out of it. It has nothing to do with, this is the only thing I'm good at. And it has nothing to do with, this is what my class demands. This is not a course requirement. Right. People who are still holding on to it in some way. And, you know, sometimes it takes a backseat for a few years and then it comes roaring back to your life in some way. It expresses itself in other ways, like you mentioned being a musician. And that's also suddenly being part of a creative process and you don't know the product. Let's see what happens when we play together. Yeah. And it's deriving this joy and keeping it alive, nurturing it in different forms. And I find that so interesting. Tell me a little bit about this, like being, maintaining the creativity during this architecture studies and also your, your brother's experience because he's an orthodontist if I'm right yes it's fascinating that both of you maintained creativity in your life through this education and the work yeah and it's like I, a lot of things I'm thinking about while you're while you're speaking 
the first thing that came to mind, which, which may go back to a different thing is, is, um, the quote that says something to the effect of painter or excuse me, art. Wow. What am I, what am I quoting here? Um, <clears throat> it's like poets don't look at other poems to learn. They look at the world, you know? Mm -hmm. So like we, we, when I think about how I, how I paint and how I draw or what I draw when I'm, when I enjoy it the most, of course I'm inspired by art. And I, of course, I think that input is so important. Um, learning from other artists, seeing what, you know, what's come before you and what's happening currently and just being inspired by that. I'm not great at it. I'm in the city with, you know, some of the best museums in the world and like drag me to a museum so hard and you can give me in. Like, and when I'm there, I love it. But just the idea of spending the afternoon at the Met, man, I'd rather spend the afternoon like painting on like, you know, the corner of Fifth Avenue. So I'm looking at the world and not other art, which I think has made it easier to say, you know, or, or, or more refreshing to not have a formal education because then like, you know, you're really guided by what's around you. And like, I think my art shifted not only by, um, what do you, you know, using new media, like switching from pit and ink to watercolor changes my whole, you know, artistic approach, um, in a really big way, but it's also what's around me. Like, so, so painting in New York, um, completely different than Kansas city. To your point about observing people in cafes and how you experience Wisconsin and how you connected to it. When I painted in Kansas City, my paintings also felt kind of expressed the isolation I was um, trying to find or that solitude rather. I think solitude is a more positive hmm. word than isolation because there were never any people in them. Whereas New York, you try to paint, you know, whatever you try to paint up fifth avenue and not put a person in there it feels wrong it's like a lie it's like that that scene with tom cruise on uh i think it was vanilla sky when he runs out in the middle of the city and there's nobody in, in new york and you're just like this is shocking you know <laughs> um so like it inserted people and activity and this new life into it by being around um all those things so that was one one part and then the other question you had I, was how how do you maintain the artistic connection while you're doing the other avenues. It's funny. So I, when, when I went to college for architecture, um, my brother Grant went to college for chemical engineering, um, which he was quite good at, but I think he hated. Um, <laughs> and so when he choose, when he chose, a lot of people were kind of surprised when he, you know, left school to go to dental school. And he's like, why do you do that? It was like, you like, he had, he already, he had already really kind of found his voice as a cartoonist. Mm -hmm. um, he started doing cartoons for the University of Daily Kansas, which is the local newspaper at the University of Kansas, and was doing a cartoon a day, five cartoons a week, you know, oh. cranking them out, which is crazy. Like, I, I did two the entire, my entire college, and it was the hardest <laughs> thing, and they weren't, you know, they weren't even good. And he did like, you know, hundreds. So I really admire that, that pursuit. But when, when he became a dentist, he's like, what? It's just working with your hands. It's just like, you know, close to detailed work with your hands. It's just like drawing. And to your point about mechanical engineering, you know, you're really, now my knowledge of mechanical engineering only comes from like one of my close friends who was trying to print on a golf ball as a senior project. And like, how do I do a spherical, spherical print with a, with a crappy Epson printer, you know, mm -hmm. anyway, learning about, you know, like hearing what his classwork was like. And it's like, oh, you are working in the physical parameters of the built environment, right? You are dealing with things that are real, that can be manipulated only by like existing tools in your hands. And what's art, you know, 
you're dealing with the, the parameters of the physical world. What's in your, you know, what's in your field of vision and also what you can accomplish by the tools that are in your hand at the time. So it's so relevant to mechanical engineering, so relevant to dentistry, I guess. And architecture obviously has a one-to-one um, relationship where you're physically drawing a building um, and its component parts. Um, and that requires a lot of attention to detail and a lot of observation and a lot of knowledge about the constraints of physical things. Right. Um, so I hope I, I hope I've answered the question. Now I've kind of lost myself in a, in a ramble here as I, as I sometimes do. Good conversations go in spirals, you know, yeah. I'm sure we'll come back to this and we'll finish uh, whatever it was, because even I'm now thinking of my next question and I've forgotten what I'd asked you before. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about you as an architect now and moving to New York City and having this perspective of a person from Kansas. And I, I want to know what is that perspective? How as an architect, as an artist and as a person of Kansas, what was it like to move to New York and uh, to, to see this other way of living. I think there was a certain shock about the, um, about the experience to me. And I think because I moved there later in life. So I graduated from college in 2009, sort of at the height of the, uh, the recession around that time when there was just zero architecture jobs out there. Nobody was hiring massive layoffs, total financial turmoil. You know, our, our professors were like, just know you're not going to get a job. And maybe five people from our graduating class got a job. So I had always dreamed about going to New York straight from college. Not that I'd ever been there um, before, but I was like, sure, that was a thing for me to do, right? <laughs> um, and um, I I didn't do it. There was no job. I didn't, honestly, I didn't really try, you know? Um, so until until later in life, when circumstances arose and... and um, I, I moved there with my girlfriend at the time. Um, she was going to uh, uh, school for graphic design, and I, and I was like, "Wow, you know, I could really use like a change of a pace, a change of scenery." Even though I'm super comfortable in Kansas City, I kind of have my whole life set up here. And I was, it was, it was the summer before I turned 30, so I guess I was 29 years old, um, which I think is kind of a late time to come to New York. But of course, everybody has their own. I mean, I'm sure people come to New York when they're 75. You know, it just I, I always had thought of it as something like young people did. Um, and of course, you're still really young at 29, not to, not to say that. But um, the point was, it was shocking. It made every everything that, you know, you, we talk, you, you talked about the two, um, thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, everything that was sort of on autopilot, laundry, navigating the city, driving, the commute all those things which are so ingrained in my life and so easy and I could just kind of sleepwalk through them. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I have to go to a laundromat. Oh, I have, and I have to buy a cart to carry or I figure out a way to get my clothes there. And also like, there's no air conditioning in this apartment. I have to find a window unit and figure out how to hang it. And what's the stick for? And what, you know, what, you know, all these things that just seem so dumb. And, you know, I'm a person who's like kind of set in their ways um, and doesn't change very easily. Like I'm usually like, I'm the boat that's going to go in straight in one direction until like, I have to veer a course usually only the last minute. And for me to have to like re kind of calibrate professionally, um, socially and, uh, I guess just 
um, you know, my day-to-day life, I think artistically that was a huge benefit because, you know, it's like a shock to the system. All of a sudden, like you are like thinking about the world in a new way and moving through the city in a new way. And, you know, it was kind of frustrating moving to New York in, in August when it's like, you know, a hundred degree heat and you're just dripping and trying to figure out all this stuff and driving U-Haul through like, you know, downtown Manhattan. Also, you don't know what you don't, don't know. And I made a lot of stuff like way harder than it should have been. Like New York's also great because every convenience is actually at your fingertips. That's the alternative side of the city is like everything you need is like literally right outside your door. Um, but I didn't know that. You have to learn that and find those things or at least I did for myself. And so moving through the city became every day like an exploration. And you really are like, you can have the shock to your system and you are like, you're back to this thinking, like being aware of everything around you. Um, where is the subway stop? Where can I use the bathroom next? Where, you know, how do I navigate this new place where I don't even know which direction I'm going on the subway, uptown or downtown? Like what do you, you know? So it was nice to, uh, because I'd only been to, so I'd only been to New York once the year before I came, um, when I was 28. So it really was, it was all new to me and that's good actually. I think, you know, when I kind of flailed my arms a little bit and realized like, oh, I can swim. Actually, I can swim better than I thought. Oh, actually, like, wow, this is actually a really easy current to swim in and really like kind of fun to just let yourself be carried away and be this anonymous person in this sea of people. Um, so it really sort of spoke to a lot of things that I didn't know about myself. Um, and I, I, I don't know that I'll ever leave. I mean, I don't have any plans to anytime soon, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. You, you mentioned being the kind of person who is set in their ways, who goes in one direction and only changes when the explicit need arises. And I can I can relate to that. So I wonder if uh, you find a catharsis for this problem in urban sketching because suddenly there is this mandate to explore and to go left and right and not yeah. go on a predetermined path. Definitely. Whereas like, I could sit at my computer and do a painting from visual reference of, of something I had, I was so comfortable with. It really does. It gives you the incentive and it gives you the excuse to, um, to get out of your comfort zone and to leave. So like, you know, Sunday, like, Oh, what am I doing today? Oh, I'm going to take the train to Coney Island and, you know, just wander and find the first thing that seems interesting to paint. And maybe that's the beach. Maybe that's a strange carnival ride. Maybe it's a building I never knew was even there. Um, it's like this opportunity to be, I, I think the term uh, was flaneur, like the urban wanderer, you know, the sort of romanticized concept of like um, this, this person roaming the city, not like, not aimlessly, but not with a goal, you know, just with, with the goal being to roam and to wander. Um, and I think that, like we need an excuse to do that, right? So much of our life is regimented or like built on, or my life, I don't want to speak for everybody, is built on production and built on productivity and, and feeling meaning, like we find meaning in our work. And so what a great, what a great um, chance 
to find meaning in wandering. And I think that's where the urban sketching really touches so many things because you can let yourself go to these places and, and really have an experience there. And you have a reason to, um, which you may not normally give yourself. Right. Yeah. So, so well put. And I think the key is that it is something you may not always give yourself because there's no real obstacle here. There's nothing uh, physically stopping us from being more exploratory exactly. in our lives. But we've assumed this, a lot of these things, right? The, the things that we give ourselves permission to do and yeah. the things we do not give ourselves permission to do. And then you just need a little bit of a, some, again, uh, urban sketching is your choice. It's not something that you were asked to do or were required to do. Right. But once you have taken on something like this, you now use it to give yourself permission to do these other lovely things, like just wandering. Like, again, it's process over product, right? Like not yeah. thinking about where you need to go, but just that I'm here to see things. Yeah. To see an experience. That's, that's, the real, that's the real goal, I think. And if a great piece of art happens to come from it, well, all the better, you know, if the art wasn't flowing that day, well, you still had an experience and, you know, you can't like take that away from yourself. So, so now thinking as a, a person trying to be process oriented, someone putting themselves out of their comfort zone because experience has taught you that sometimes you're going to find really beautiful things outside of your comfort zone and uh -huh. the payoff is going to be big. And you're looking around New York City and you're looking for, or even around New York City, and you're looking for things that are interesting. The things that are interesting, that, that I, I really love to sort of reverse engineer my own work. I look at my sketchbooks and I try to see what was I finding interesting. Yeah. Why did I draw this thing that day? Or why is this sketchbook in this phase of my life about these things? And what does that say about me? And I think like this mm -hmm. because... Uh, I've decided to be an artist in my life. Like mm -hmm. it is a deliberate choice, choice to yeah. practice art and to sell art and to get people to care about my art. So none of it is what, uh, how I say it is that none of it was quote unquote meant to be. I'm making yeah. it happen. And therefore I need to make it happen with intentionality and deliberation rather than accidentally hitting it big or accidentally striking gold somewhere and right. not ever being able to repeat the process because I don't know what worked and I'm just going to flail my arms and hope something strikes again. So I do this a lot. Like I look at my art and I try to find what is my motivation, what is my inspiration. And then I try to express that with people. I try to think about how can I make it clear to my viewers that these are the things that I care about. What is an unobtrusive way to do it? What is a way that doesn't come in front of the art? I mm. see you do it in a very interesting way. I love your captions on Instagram. And I love that they exist, even though I'm pretty sure 99% of your fans don't even look at it. And you get the <laughs> you get the double tap like, and then they scroll on. No, I that's interesting. Like, I haven't even thought that, I haven't even mentioned really that it's become a writing project as much as a, um, as much as an artistic project. And that's really beneficial to me because that's another thing I talk and go back to telling stories, you know, and, and like how Grant and I were always telling each other stories and how those stories really diverged. Like he has very directly made a career in cartooning and now children's books where he's telling a story. And I didn't really know what my story was necessarily until I was like, well, gosh, damn, why are you making it so hard? Like your story is literally what you felt when you were there. It doesn't have to be anything poor. It's an observation 
And, um, and if you're lucky, the story, you know, the story is just given to you by somebody on the street. Um, so that's been like, I guess one of the, one of the places I've consciously, um, I've consciously tried to expand my work is really, is, is really being thoughtful and using it as a writing project as much as a visual project, because I think that like, that's part of the experience, a part of the memory and part of what I find value in is, is capturing that. Yeah. What, what something I've thought often, and I love to, I'm a writer first and an artist afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so I've often thought about what I'm trying to write about what I'm seeing and why I'm drawing in the first place or why I'm writing it all in the first place. So I started drawing when I, obviously I drew when I was a child, but when I started to draw again, it was comics. And I started to draw these web, uh, web comics using stick figures because um, I was incapable of drawing from imagination. Uh -huh. So I drew stick figure comics to make fun of things that were happening around me in my world. And when I realized I wanted to draw better and I needed to draw better, I started to look around my world to draw from observation. And mm. now I don't do the comic so much. Now the art and its own expression is working for me in different ways. But I'm always thinking about the things that are interesting. So, and I'm glad to hear that you're doing the same because there are certain things that, and I've come to realize this from working across different media, that there are certain things that you want to say that are best said as a comic. And then there are certain things that are best said as a three-line joke. And then there are certain things that need to be an urban sketch. You can't communicate that feeling with yeah. words anymore. So I see your words and I see your art and I see them sort of balancing each other. Like there are things you're saying with the text that you cannot convey through the art. And then there are things you're saying through the art that you do not need to anymore oh. say through the text. So uh, as a person who's thinking along these lines, evidently with regards to what you find interesting, now, which part of you is the artist, the writer, the songwriter, the architect, or, and the musician when you are on a location? You mentioned going to Coney Island. So imagine going to Coney Island. What are the things that catch your eye as an artist? Well, first of all, uh, th thank you for that observation. It's a really generous uh, way of, of thinking about, of, about my art. I appreciate that. And I guess the... I don't, I don't really consider these things in isolation it's like they they are all part of the experience right and just how do we interpret that experience and how do we communicate it back to somebody else um so if i'm yeah if i'm going to coney island and and, and leading the train um and you know the first thing you feel off the water is is oh wow it's you know it's probably 10 degrees cooler here the wind is the wind is really coming off off the water and in your face and with the wind is the smells and sort of this, this sort of the dead of the, of the, you know, carnival rides or the music. And then really like what my, the first thing, like I'm, I'm sort of following the first thread I'm following there is like, what are the people around me doing? And the thing I love about Coney Island the most is just this, like this sense of it's, it's one of New York's biggest public parks, right? People are gathering, like there's a group of like, you know, guys with a boombox dancing, you know, and like, or like there's the guy, like the guys like waving the Puerto Rican flag on the boardwalk and they're, you know, six old guys without their shirts on playing, um, you know, different percussion instruments, or there's like the fishermen, um, who are, you know, just sort of 
truly just like gazing out to nothing, like waiting for, waiting for a bite of their line. And then the tourists, which I considered, you know, maybe my, myself a little bit of, who are just there to see it all and just to walk and wander and maybe ride a ride or, or get a, get a snow cone or a cotton candy. And then there's the people going to the beach and, you know, just, you know, swimsuits and like, you know, play catch on the sand or flying kites or, or lay out a blanket to, to get in the sun. And then I'm like, how did we, like, it's great. We have, we have this gathering place. We have this, this communal experience that everybody's using the same place and in a completely different way. You know, there's a the drunk people singing karaoke. There's like the, um, the street performers, um, there are the carnival, like workers that are, you know, barking at you to, to ride the ride. It's like, and then I'm like, how, wow. Okay. Well, how do who created this gathering place? How do we all decide to come here? You know, certainly it was the pipe dream of some businessman who wanted to like bring, you know, these waterfront attractions and, and sort of everything assembled in sort of this weird haphazard way, which was also, um, you know, about this sort of really eccentric architecture, um, that then the, the neighborhoods around them started to inject their personality into. So like you'd see the, you know, the Russian restaurants at Brighton beach and sort of that influenced the, the, you know, the Puerto Rican music that's being played, the like old school, like Italian, like, um, delis and, and bakeries and things like that. And all these people just, you know, decided they would meet each other here and build something, have experiences. And also like communicate or like share their world. Like the people who are, who are, who are making music are sharing their world. The people who are, you know, I'm sharing my world by creating art here. Um, people are gathering with their friends and, and, and trying to just have like a day away from their home. Um, so I, I guess when I go there, it's like, there's the visual, what am I seeing? What's happening around me? How is the sunlight hitting the boardwalk? And what, what building am I just attracted to through like a very, like, um, I guess in, in a very visceral direct way. And then like, how are the people using this space? Like, what's my place in it? And how will I slot into this, this larger world here? Um, so I may have gone to draw the cyclone, but instead I ended up drawing the guy who's wearing a Mets hat, standing against like a blue and blue and orange wall, like smoking a cigarette because like. He told the story of what I'm experiencing more than the roller coaster that's, you know, one of the most famous things of, of Coney Island would ever tell. Um, right. And again, you know, now I've, I've totally lost with the original question. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but you said some wonderful things. So, <laughs> let, me, let me come back to some of these lovely things you just said, because I agree with so much of them. Like when, when you were describing this visit to Coney Island, I was immediately struck by how you're also first looking at human activity. And the first motivator is what are the people doing and what are the different kinds of people here? Mm -hmm. And I often think along these lines. So one of the things that I dwell upon is the why of a city. So mm. why is a city? Not what is a city, not how is a city, but why is a city? Yeah. And I find it fascinating that cities are these bottom-up construction, especially in America, cities are bottom-up constructions. They've come together because people united over a certain need to be fulfilled, like whether there's a natural wonder nearby or a resource that they want to mine hmm. or various other commercial activities. So big cities are 
inherently melting pots and you have different people doing different kinds of things. You see a cafe and is it, so this is a question I ask very often is, is it really a cafe if there is nobody inside drinking coffee? Mm. Is it right for me to call a building tall if there is no human uh, reference for scale next to it? What makes a building tall is the presence of human activity. The reference to human stature and human size is what says this is a tall building or this is a short building. So the the presence of humans is integral. And so my, my reason for why my answer to why is a city comes to because there are people. Yeah. If there are no people, there is no city. Like if there are no people, just like that scene from Vanilla Sky, we're talking about dystopia. Uh-huh. We're not talking about anything that, you know, it's not a road anymore. It's not a sidewalk anymore if there's nobody walking. And uh, so I'm I'm glad to see that you're, you see the city in this way and you see this the the elements of a city in terms of their utility to humans. So again, the fact that a boardwalk is beautiful is because all of these people have decided to use it for their leisure time in some way. Yeah. And some people are doing business and commerce there, but other people have come and have sort of mutually agreed to these terms of engagement yeah. that we stand in line for the candy cane, uh, candy corn, and we stand, uh, we, we, li- uh, we, we buy these tickets to ride the roller coasters and we walk over here, we sit over here, we throw our trash over there. And all of these are unspoken agreements between people who don't know each other, who are probably better off not knowing each other and who have mm-hmm. no reason to, you know, who, who are living... Uh, what I like to think of as private lives in public and, spaces. And that, I love, I love what you said about that because that's such a great description of New York. It is private lives in public spaces. Like it's a place where you can feel the most, the most alone and most isolated and most anonymous. Whereas where you may be seen by a million people that day. And I just think of it as this, this sort of everybody's New York is different, right? Everybody's the guy, the guy playing maracas on the boardwalk. His New York is a different world than my New York. The guy selling hot dogs at the baseball stadium or the guy pitching on the baseball field at, you know, for the Cyclones, is, his New York is completely different than my New York. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like allowed, like more so than anywhere else that I've ever lived. Um, you know, coming from, from the Midwest, I, I was saying, you know, so many great things about the Midwest. It's a, a wonderful place. I love Kansas. I, I you know, could talk to him blue in the face about how beautiful this is. But one of the, um, I guess, disappointing things or, or sort of things that I, I feel can be a detriment to, to that place is, you know, it's almost like there's this expectation that you'll live a life that's more like the people around you, right? You know, I grew up in a, a town where probably 90% of the population is white, you know? And so there's this sort of like, um, whether, in, you know, people didn't, necessarily choose to have it that way the people who are living there now i mean i'm sure one time somebody wanted it to be that way but it just sort of happened and you you accepted this as your reality that you would live a life so similar to the people around you mm-hmm. in new york you would never wish that you would never think that it's a virtual impossibility and you can never pin down what that what that city will be because everybody uses it and experiences it in a different way and there are all these parallel overlapping intersecting lives sort of happening all around us that it's so impossible to even like um, comprehend the city because, you know, even when you think you know what it is for you, 
it's probably going to change next month or next year, you know, right. or next week even. And that's the, that's the best and most sort of energizing and inspiring thing about the city. Nobody's expecting you to live the life they're living. Nobody mm-hmm. would ever ask that, you know, um, mm-hmm. which more places could sort of take that, uh, take that lesson, I think, and really yeah. like, you know, it, it would, it would allow for so much growth. Um, yeah. And we would, you would think that you have freedom when there aren't other people to tell you what to do, but I love this freedom that comes from being in a packed place where you are nobody because nobody is anybody and right. everyone is just someone. And there is this freedom in de- And this is sort of uh, the thought process my wife and I had uh, when we were in Wisconsin and we'd spent about two and a half, maybe almost three years there. Mm-hmm. And so we'd started to get to know people. I had uh, been selling art for a couple of years. So a lot of people knew me. And she was practicing as a dentist. A lot of people knew her and we had a social circle starting to form. But we, uh, like, I think there was this lingering thought that we couldn't live here because we need, we would need to become a certain kind of person to live here. We would have to have a certain practices, certain habits, certain observances about our world. Like there there are these things you're supposed to do. This is the way of life. Right. And we wanted to be in a place where we would be completely uh, anonymous. We would completely blend into a crowd. And for us, Chicago was that was that yeah. thing that we wanted to go to. And of course, New York works in the same way. Have you heard of this word called Sonder? No, sorry, say it again. It's the, a word called Sonder. S-O-N-D-E-R. No. Yeah, let me read it out to you. So this, uh, I read this word uh, maybe a decade ago from this website called A Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Very poignant. <laughs> so Sonder, and I'm now quoting, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness. An epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once, as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, or as a lighted window at dusk. Wow, chills. That's that's really, really incredible. And it's a feeling that I try to capture when I go out to draw in any city, this idea that every little person I just drew is a fully formed person living in the center of their own universe. And I have just been a blip in their world for a little bit and they have been a blip in my world. But if I'm a sneaky enough artist and if I am ready, maybe I will capture an impression of that blip and I'll be able to keep it forever. you know, it could just be like the blip is like a flick of the wrist and you, you have, you know, I try to just like people are just, a, they're emotion, right? They're just mm-hmm. like, yeah, but you just captured, captured that life. And uh, it's, that's incredible. What a great way to, to look at art. The world is so easy to, to access and all these different experiences are, are so easy to access. I think that really informs my art personally and allows it to, to go in these different paths because the paths are evident and they're actually easy to jump on um, without having to like, you know, drive an hour and a half <laughs> for <you> know, Wisconsin <laughs> reference. Um, right. You really can enter 
into this, new, you know, hop into this new stream uh, and sort of see where that'll, wh wh where you'll float um, versus other places you may have to make, you know, if you're, if you're in Western Kansas, you may need to drive, you know, four hours before you find a landscape that, um, that changes, right? So it's sort of this rapidity of movement in um, the way the city kind of unfolds around you of how you have the ocean, you have the mountains, you have um, the really like towering urban core versus like the beautiful like tree-lined streets and brownstones. Um, I think for me, that really helps the artistic process because you're able to um, find those things with, with much more ease you wave somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I love that you use the word input because I want to think about this in two respects, in terms of input and in terms of output. Uh, staying on input for a little bit longer, mm -hmm. uh, there's so much input also from the fact that, I mean, it's the most famous city in the world. It yeah. is such an indelible part of so much pop culture, like cartoons and movies and television shows. Does this play a a role in this input for you or is it something that you have to almost uh, keep out? That's actually a really good question because it's it was quite the opposite of what I expected. When I moved here, I was like, you know, I had a list of landmarks I was supposed to draw, right? Draw the Statue of Liberty, draw the Empire State Building, draw the Flatiron Building, um, draw the World, you know, One World Trade. And okay, that was fine. I drew most of those things or, or still draw most of those things where they appear, they, they find their way of welding up. But the most fascinating thing about, about sharing my work. And I, I try to be like, I try to be a bit removed. It's hard because we all want, we all really rely on like other people's input and feedback and connection. It's kind of what keeps, you know, your art going is when other people respond to it and, you know, are like, Hey, like I really connect with that. Right. So what I found people connect with, is is really the 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 minutia it's it's the small things it's the you know it's the deli on the corner that like um i drew on a friday afternoon because it was so right outside my doorstep that's the stuff that people are like oh my god i used to go there and get the cuban sandwich and you know um an orange soda and like i love the cat who lives behind the you know the counter and you know it's like wow people will like will like latch on and tell their story in relation to the the strangest things, and I never expect. Um, whereas if I draw the Empire State Building, okay, it's all in our collective consciousness, but it doesn't necessarily have like any particular emotional resonance or meaning to a lot of people. It's just a, it's it's a signifier of New York um, in actually much less of a way than say like a random apartment building in Greenpoint might be, where like so many lives have been lived. <laughs> I could I couldn't believe it. I, I drew um a commission for this uh you know, one of just a a three story um clapboard siding like apartment building off of McGulwick Park at Greenpoint here in Brooklyn. And, you know, it's an interesting facade, bright yellow, built in the nineteen fifties probably. You will find, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of these buildings in, in Greenpoint, not to mention the rest of Brooklyn. And I painted this and I immediately had like five people reach out to me. Oh my God, I used to live there. Oh my God. Like, you know, my apartment was on the third floor. Oh, I remember that tree so well. It turned out even a friend of mine lived there and I never knew she lived there. You know, like it was just like, 
how many stories are in every single block um, that we don't even know about. And the beautiful thing that I've found about my art is when I do this, the only meaning this building may have to me is I like the way the shadow, a shadow falls from the tree outside, right? It catches my eye visually, but to somebody else, that's the place where they, you know, raised their first child or got engaged or, you know, sort of like lived this entire life. And like, that's, that's the coolest thing I found about the way my art, um, or the way I connect to people with my art is, you know, it, my experience is sort of built upon by their stories that they tell in relation to my experience. And that's right. an incredible thing that I had no idea I would be able to like tap into. And I'm still kind of amazed at every day. Uh, and there's something the city really lends itself to. Do you find that people find it a little easier to connect with art as opposed to the other so many forms of media that represent New York? Like there are movies and there are pictures and there are, I mean, there are fantastic coffee table books, I assume, with all kinds of pictures of New York City and all kinds of pictures of uh, less popular spots of New York City as well. Simply by the numbers, the number of people who have covered New York, you'd think even these ideas have been represented in other ways. So now I want to think about not uh, the subject, but the the format in which you show that subject. Do you mm. think that has an impact on how people connect with it? I do. I do. I think there. It's like watching. It's like watching sports, right? Like when I'm watching football, watching basketball, I'm not playing, but my emotions, I'm living and dying with this team, right? Um, I'm really kind of going through the ups and downs, the highs and lows that the, the team that I'm cheering for is experiencing. Um, even being so far away, watching them in a tiny television set, like I'm having an emotional response to every single thing they're doing. I would like to hope, or I would hope that in the best case, like when you see art that's been sort of created in the way that, that we create on site in person, people, people understand the process and understand a little bit of what we felt while we're creating it. And there is an emotional response. I think that's so direct and so connected to that visual depiction of the experience that people really, it's the experience that resonates with people, you know, it's knowing that that day was rainy and like those little drops on the page are, are for dots of rain that were, you know, that were falling on the pier while I was standing there. It'll be like, yeah, like I can feel that rain on my coat right now. I was just there walking my dog but last week, you know, like it's truly this crazy form of telepathy um, that like, on the best day or in the, in the best, in the, in the best circumstances, people do understand a little bit about the experience you had and the emotions you felt while you were creating that piece of art. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, two thoughts from that. Firstly, I feel like the person drawing or painting by the street corner, there is a sense that the art is not on a pedestal mm. and we have again, the permission to engage with it. And mm. a lot of people feel that they do not have the permission to comment on or engage with, even if not to publicly comment, but to just personally in their mind, give themselves the headspace to engage with something. That's I think people don't give themselves a lot of permission. The other thing I was thinking, and this comes to me as an engineer, and uh, I'm a, I, I studied uh, control engineering as well, which is all about reducing the world to 
bits of information and how we deal with it um so i look at uh, i look at your paintings for example when we consider the whole world and we consider the thing that you're looking at and you can take a picture of it you could make a tiktok video of it you could take you could may shoot a movie at coney island as so many movies have been made and there's a certain amount of information that those mediums capture a photograph of the same moment of the same view that you have angled the same way would capture a lot more information right. and the process of making art is the process of filtering and cutting out a lot of information that yeah. you see that would otherwise have gone into a picture and then sharing that emphasized bit of data that here just look at this shadow or just look at the yeah. silhouette of these people look at the uh, the chiaroscuro that i'm creating out of out of their bodies rather than looking at the lines that border them because famously a lot of your art does not feature those hard bordered lines mm. which by the way is 100% of my art being a line artist <laughs> i feel like both of our drawings are negatives of each other that's so interesting no i love that and to your point about reducing the bits <clears throat> the bit to bits of information or focusing your attention right Because that's what we're doing. We're creating art. We're focusing our attention for a given moment on that thing. And what comes out, comes out. We may not know. Your line drawing will be different than my watercolor. And maybe next week you'll do a watercolor, you know, or maybe next year you'll be painting watercolor and I'll be exploring the value of glowing. You know, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, I, I, I thought about two things when I heard that. I thought about the the way that... <clears throat> You know, occasionally I do I do commissions and, and other larger projects for for different you know companies, organizations, or individuals, whoever. And oftentimes I am at my in my studio working from a photo reference. You can tell, like you can tell when I paint from a, a photo. I can tell. I think people can tell. Like it 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 may be more technically good and correct, right? Mm-hmm. Because I had more information to input, but mm-hmm. I don't think. And sometimes I'll find that flow. I'll, I'll dip into that stream, as it were, and be able to put myself there, and it'll turn out, you know, spectacular. Other times I'll be like, "Wow, yeah, okay, man, I've had too much information. I had too much input. I didn't have enough. I didn't have any way to like create a hierarchy and whittle it down. And this became a nice piece of art, a fine piece of art, but something I'm ultimately not quite satisfied with. In a way, I might have been, even if I had a more uncomfortable experience there painting." To the other point about you know media that does it really well, um, beyond photography or, or 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 movies, which are all forms of scene, right? Is like music. And when Tom Waits, who like also famously uses Coney Island in a number of songs, even lived there with his with his girlfriend and future wife, um, when he talks about Coney Island, he's really like mentioning like one or two bits of important information, and you're filling the rest of this world in. You're mm-hmm. picturing all these things. You're creating the world around it, and in the best circumstances, um, or you know, sometimes almost accidentally, a piece of art will do that and allow the other people to fill in. You know, the people around it to fill in their experience, to fill in what they feel or what they you know input into the minimal amount of information you gave them, um, which is incredible, right? Like that's and that's all about writing. Writings like that, you know, uh, music's like that, paintings like that. And of course, even film and, and photography are because ultimately you are limiting the field of view and limiting the and choosing what to look at. It's just all about different ways to reduce that information, that, that input. Um, so it's really incredible, and that's why, like, oh, it's so fun to switch media 
and to jump from like a pen and ink drawing or a watercolor. Like right now, that watercolor is the stream I'm dipping my toe into, right? But next, you know, next year, maybe something different. Um, mm-hmm. So I just love that, that the tool you use helps you focus your attention in a different way. It, it often forms the way or defines the way, necessarily limits the way you focus your attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you said this thing about people engaging, interacting with it, because that's exactly what I think it is, that when you give people less information, they fill in the blanks from their own world. And suddenly, like I draw these, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of my tiny people drawings, but I draw at traffic intersections and I will draw people who are walking by. So I only have maybe 10 seconds with them if they stop still at a light. Uh So I have to capture the person in 10 seconds. And this obviously means distilling a lot of information. I can't draw their face, facial features. I can't show their expression often, but I can capture pose and I can capture fashion. Oh, I love it. Looking at right now, actually. (laughs) Yeah. So the decisions I make uh, in cutting down so that I can finish, this leads to an open-ended thing that I believe viewers can put people from their own world into. And you can see maybe yourself in one of them. Maybe you can see some, and these are all people in Vancouver, but maybe you'll see somebody that you recognize from your world because they 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 tick those few boxes so that they are perfectly suitable for that street corner in New York where you were drawing yesterday. Uh-huh. So uh, I want to talk about the output side of your art as well. And I want to know more about you as a designer and illustrator. But before we do that, let's take a five minute break and catch our breaths, drink some water, and then let's get back to this. All right, sounds good. I hope you're enjoying our conversation so far. Allow me a minute's break here as Gavin catches his breath to thank my sponsors. Strictly one minute this time. Let's go. My sponsors are, of course, listeners just like you. If you're still listening to this, I think you're exactly the kind of super listener that supports this show. The Sneaky Art Podcast is an independent production that is a one-person show made entirely by this one person. From booking guests to dreaming up questions, from having the conversation to editing myself out of them as much as I can afterwards, it is a lot of time and effort that I put into this show. So I reach out to listeners just like you, who are part of this journey with me, to support my independent work. Become a sneaky art insider to help me continue to make this show that I think you love too. At the cusp of 50 episodes, I'm asking for only $1 per episode. That's it. If this matches the value you have received from listening to me these past couple of years, join the Sneaky Art Insider Club using the link in the episode description. Alright, back to the conversation. I have some good questions and Gavin has limited time. So let's go. Should we start? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. So, um, Gavin, we spoke about the enormous, incredible input that New York City gives you. And I was curious about uh, my question of whether it's easier or harder to be an artist was split along these two, uh, these two sides of it, the input and the output. And in terms of the input, I feel it is certainly both easier and harder. There is uh, incredible uh, catalysts and sources of inspiration all over the city, making it so much easier for us to be inspired and to pick up the pen and start. 
but it's also harder because sometimes you can become very aware of the pop culture and of the various representations of things and you might feel that you're not saying something original or authentic you're just you might feel that you're saying something that has been said in so and so way and you're just doing a cover of that song right <laughs> uh the other aspect of this is the output and i wonder again if it's easier and harder in different respects and the by output i mean so when i was uh trying to be an artist in chicago it was i there was competition that was more than wisconsin so it was tougher for me to stand out it was easier for me to stand out with my art in wisconsin and it is relatively easier as compared to chicago for me to stand out with my art in vancouver but the flip side is there aren't as many avenues by which my art can be shared and expressed so right. the number of people who care about what you're doing the number of businesses and uh, private individuals who want to uh, patronize or endorse you in some way so tell me about this side how what's it been like in new york for you the uh, the sharing your art with the world in different ways has in what ways has it been easy in what ways has it been difficult yeah that's a great question um it's funny i how do i how do i put this growing up a twin with a brother who has <clears throat> this is a really a reduction of course but the same or equal abilities as you in pretty much everything um if not or if not exceeds your abilities um you sort of you sort of the the individual like one thing i was i always trying to achieve when i was younger was some distinction or you know or grant and i were trying to achieve from one another was was to distinguish ourselves as individuals right I'd spike my hair up, he'd comb his hair down, you know, um, <laughs> whatever we could do, you know, he'd wear blue, I'd wear red, like from a young age, whatever we could do to kind of distinguish ourselves, um, right. in experience and in, um, people, other people's eyes was sort of, uh, what we did also growing up as a twin, you're told you're special constantly. Um, so <laughs> I think that gets a little bit ingrained in you. You're always like, you're, you know, you're always notable for the reason you may not want to be notable for, which is there's somebody who looks a lot like you. Now, Grant and I have diverged and we've gone our separate ways. If you saw us next to each other now, you may not be a bit tell we're twins until we started talking the exact same sort of intonation. Um, then you'd be like, oh, wait, nope, I see it. Okay, perfect. Um, you know, he has this close cropped military haircut, whereas I sort of, you can see, everybody listening to you can't see, but my fear is... Somebody said going to ZZ Top links. I don't think it's quite there, but no, it's there. about half of ZZ Top. But yeah. you're going in that direction. You'll get yeah, there. Yeah, we get. You know, by the end of the summer, come talk to me, and we we may be there. Anyway, um, so like it's it's funny because I've never thought of that output as competition with Grant. We've sort of had the shared success or shared like ambition and um, experience where like. I'm reading his comics and giving him feedback. He's kind of looking at my art and saying, Hey, have you tried this avenue? Have you thought about this? It's a dialogue. And what I love about New York is there's this opportunity for dialogue with so many artists because necessarily that, you know, whereas like in Mulvane, Kansas, where I grew up, I may be the only urban sketcher. I'm probably not, honestly. I'm sure there are other people in Mulvane, Kansas, a town of 5,000 people, um, uh, a rural town outside of Wichita. Um, I'm sure there are actually other urban sketchers that I would whose work I'd be wowed by. But growing up, you know, 
you're a little bit defined in a small place like that. You're defined by like, oh, you're the guy who draws. In New York, you can't be defined by that because literally everybody, like it's it's home to the most talented artists in the world, you know? And, and if you think you're like the best at something, chances are there's there's somebody, a woman or a man, probably living on your block who's done it better and done it in a way that is, you know, will totally dumbfound you and stop you in your tracks. And I think that's so great because you're you're all of a sudden part of this community. Um, one thing I'm not great at, or you know, maybe because I sort of came about art as a way to like be in my own world and be in my own thoughts and feelings and sort of isolate myself, is connecting with other creatives. And I've tried to do a better job about it recently, and you know, reach out to the people who who I do really appreciate their work. Um, there's this great thing called. Uh, Instagram. Have you heard of it? <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but anyway, I mean, just the the internet has done such a you know so many of course things that have made our lives so much more complicated and difficult. But I think that it's been such a wonderful thing for artists to share their work and to learn about the work of others and to know that they're not creating in a vacuum, but they're creating in this world of other people um, all around the world. It's really shrunk you know, really stroke the world. I mean, you and I can have this conversation all the way across the continent and, you know, be part of a community of, of, of artists. And that's really wonderful. In New York, the community is, is truly right outside your door and there to be had. And I love to approach it in the way that like, this is your voice, right? Your voice won't sound like um, the voice of the person next to you. Your voice maybe higher or lower, a little scratchy or a little, uh, a little rougher or whatever. But like, what's more boring than like a world where everybody's voice was the same. You know, there'd be no, we wouldn't even want to listen to, to people singing or, or like, um, vocal music because there'd be no reason to, there'd be no experience there. So like, I love being inspired by the artists around me in New York who are doing those things and creating in that way. And to know that the way you see New York, while somebody may have, yes, somebody has painted the Empire State Building a million times, we'll say. It's been in movies and pop culture and iconography, whatever. But if I left this, this, um, if I left our call and I went out and stood on the at Transmitter Park Pier and painted it, not only would the Empire State Building look different than anybody else has ever painted it, it would look different than every other time I've painted it, which is hundreds of times, right? And that's a cool, that's the coolest thing about like, I guess just the artistic pursuit is that, that sort of repetition and that you are like part of a shared community who has been, um, living in a similar way, um, and also experiencing similar things, but the way they transmit or like, um, communicate that experience is always going to be different. Um, right. Right. I, it's always going to be interesting. Yeah, I feel like such a large part of this is our internal psychology because it sounds to me like you're seeing your environment as a positive sum world or a positive sum game and not a zero sum game in which uh, every time someone else wins, you lose. And I think uh, there's a bit of that kind of feeling lingering in any kind of freelance business, in any kind of independent uh, artistic work that someone else's gain is your is an opportunity that you lost right 
And uh, do you do you find yourself kind of fighting against this instinct in your work? Yeah, it's it's funny because I've because my experience growing up, and I don't want to say it doesn't you know that doesn't occur to me because of course I you know go through all those emotions that anybody does. What's the phrase? If you compare yourself to others, you either become vain or bitter. Um, wow, it feels good to be vain. Wow, I'm a great you know <laughs> my work is so great. Or oh, I'm bitter. Like they're better than me, and I don't never get there. Or we could just leave that behind and not. But, you know, fortunately, having a um, quite proficient and prolific and, you know, talented twin has led me to realize that, like, gosh, my voice is my voice. And I don't, you know, Grant was uh, published in the New York Times, like, when he was, you know, in his, in his mid-20s. Like, um, I guess I was published in the New York Times last year for the first time uh, when I was 35, you know, like, <laughs> um it took me a while to get there and like, uh, the success. Yeah. It, it, it isn't, yeah, it isn't a zero sum game. It's, it's like, it's all like, you know, thankfully I've been able to like, you know, growing up, not to say we weren't competitive because we're competitive is like, you know, crazily competitive. We, we couldn't do like a bench press in our weight set downstairs without the other one being like, Oh, I have to do five bench presses too. You know, like we're crazily competitive, but like when, um, you know, somebody succeeds or when, when Grant would succeed, I would be like, oh, gosh, that's my success too, you know? And I think that actually has helped me have a healthy relationship to other artists around me um, where it is like, man, like, oh my God, this person is an incredible painter. Wow, I could never do that. But I could buy their painting and support them as an artist and thereby like, you know, their success is now like something I can share and because I can like admire their work on the wall. You know, um, and that's something I've been trying to do too, is like when I, you know, I just, I just started this in the past year or two, when I really admire an artist or see something that just catches my eye, you know, don't even think twice, be like, Hey, you selling that? Like, you know, I'd love, to, I'd love to put that on my wall. I'd love to like, cause gosh, you know, I have even behind me again, I'm referencing something you can see, but there's a painting I did. I don't want a painting I did on my wall. <laughs> I want a painting you did, you know? I want a, I want the, the people of Vancouver. Or I want, like, you know, somebody else, somebody else's depiction of the Statue of Liberty on my, on my wall. So it's, it's cool. It's, it's, it's great to have a dialogue and to learn. And, of course, the other fun thing to do with, that I love about, you know, meeting other artists in New York is just to talk shot and be like, hey, all right, ditch. what paintbrush should you use for that? Uh, what color is that? Oh my God, what a great color for Shannon's, you know. Um, I think you interviewed uh, Katie, Katie, uh, uh, who is Rambling Sketcher. Katie is Rambling Sketcher on Instagram, who's, you know, an incredible urban sketcher. And I remember her posting about uh, the color Moon Glow, the Daniel Smith watercolor Moon Glow. I was like, wow, if she felt strong enough to post about it, I need to find this color. And now I'm like, oh my God, what a great tip. I love this. Like, it's this perfect purple blue shadow like it blends and it separates into like these component colors and i'm like man um and i was taught to watercolor by actually a colleague of mine uh, mike Connolly, who sort of had a traditional architectural background and this was really i've only been doing watercolor for this is maybe my second or third i think it's three years now maybe maybe three um maybe three years of watercolor um being my primary medium and I just sat down one day with him. It was like, or he gave me a tutorial. He's like, okay, here are the five colors you need. You only need one brush. Doesn't matter how big, just that has a sharp tip. And 
all that matters is you buy this specific paper. I was like, wow, how did I not know this before? Like, I just, I hated watercolor because I was using the wrong paper. And now he gave me this harsh watercolor block. And now I'm like, this is not a paid for promotion, by the way. Harsh watercolor paper will change your life. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but, uh, but I was like, wow, like, you know, learning, like if I had never sat down with him and asked a question or like he had never volunteered his time, I never would have learned those things. And now I'm like, oh gosh, I need to be better about this. Like I can isolate myself for like, you know, use art for solitude all I want, but there are so many like amazing artists and resources all around me, not just in New York, but easily accessible on the internet. Like the fact that we're having this conversation right now. Right. You know? Right. Um, is, is really, is really incredible. And I guess I appreciate you for like, you know, connecting the dots and like reaching out to people and just like, you know, sharing your work and like also inviting me to, to speak because like, wow, like I would have never been like, Hey man, can I come on your podcast? <laughs> you know, like just isn't and and let's talk for two hours. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> so what, what I really <laughs> like about this podcast is that it gives me this excuse to talk to people and pick their brains with my strange questions for it's a great. couple of hours, because this is, it's what's really crazy about what I'm doing is that often just like us right now, this is the first time that I'm speaking to a person yeah. and imagine the first conversation you have with a person being everything about their life after you've made yeah, extensive <laughs> notes to prepare for it. Yeah. And then it's two hours or two, more than two hours long. It's a very bizarre thing to do, but I love doing it because of exactly what you said. You know, you were talking about uh, what you hit upon right towards the end of what you were saying was really uh, resonant with me about uh, being a person who seeks solitude and being solitary and how being in the mindset of a positive sum game, which is so healthy for us, requires us to think of community and yeah. not think of us as solitary individuals. And a part of being an artist is it is necessary to think of yourself as an individual, to be very firm about vision yeah. and about the things that drive you and to find those motivators that are your motivators, not yeah. anyone else's. So one aspect is to separate yourself from all tribes and be yourself. But it's so healthy then to come back or to identify the tribes that you can associate with. So, yeah. For example, your professional tribe of other artists and illustrators, because you can talk shop, you can, you can understand from their mistakes, and you can sort of celebrate their success as well and be of the mindset that that is a good and useful thing to do. So true, so true. Now, uh, on your website, you've uh, described yourself as an artist, an illustrator, and a designer. And first off, I love that because uh, I'm going through the same kind of conflict of having to need multiple labels because I can't quite explain what I do and how uh, how things work. Um, but uh, so I'm curious about other people who take multiple labels, for lack of a better word, and the ones that they choose. So artist, illustrator, and designer, how would you differentiate these three terms? Wow, great question. And actually something I've really struggled with. Um, I don't think I was confident or able to call myself an artist till really recently, which is ridiculous because I've been an artist my whole life. I don't think I could be anything else, you know? But for some reason that like artist with a capital A um, sort of pushed me away or I had a, a adverse, reaction to, adverse reaction to it because I felt that it, it 
it signified something that I wasn't sure I was, I was able to meet or wanted to be a part of. And now I'm like, no, like I'm an artist, I'm a painter, like I'm a guitarist, I'm a singer. Okay. Like, I don't know why I've had such trouble with these labels. What was easier for me actually was to say designer and illustrator, because these are like, and maybe it's the way I've been or say sort of society or, or maybe my upbringing or whatever my, my lived experience has been like, that something has to have utility. It has to have meaning. It has to, it has to be productive in a way. Whereas being a designer and an illustrator, well, you're a problem solver, you know, mm -hmm. as a designer, you're, you're solving a problem and you're, you're creating something just like an artist would, but you're creating something in response to a very specific problem and, and giving a very practical solution. As an illustrator, the solution may be less practical, but you're still solving a problem and ultimately using, um, art, um, or you know, whatever visual means to communicate an idea. So it's also utility. Art, calling yourself an artist, gosh, what's the benefit of that, right? Is there, is there, are you solving a problem? Are you, are you creating something of value? And it took me a long time to realize like, yes, actually like the most valuable, like what more do we need? Like art is so important to our life and every life. And it always has been. And you know, there's a part of me like, oh, I could, you know, I need to keep architecture because like, what if like there's another recession and nobody has a need for art, you know, nobody's buying a painting of their, you know, whatever nobody wants. That's crazy. We've been painting since the, like, since human, humans lived in caves and, you know, wanted to, you know, like paint wild animals on the walls of the cave, right? Like we've always needed this thing. It's always been a part of, of our lived experience. Why would it ever be something I questioned or ever be something that um, I doubted? And I guess, I don't know. I don't know the answer to why, why I was having, why I had so much trouble with the label artist maybe yeah. it's because I didn't have the formal training or whatever. Um, or maybe I thought that like somebody else's experience of art had to be my own, but of course it's not, not the case. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really mm -hmm. like, I really like, I think all of them do have utility. Um, and do have, um, meaning and art, art, you know, and now I put artists first of all those things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so well put because indeed it took me so long to accept that word for myself. And even now in this conversation itself, and I've had more than 40 of these, every time I use the word artist or art to describe what I'm doing, there is this little part of me in the back of my head that just cringes a little bit and says, <laughs> you don't have the right to use that word. How can you use that word? It's been, yeah, and it's become, it's become smaller over time and less powerful. So I'm glad for that. But taking on this label of artist and again, artist capital A and artist sometimes ending with E, I don't know what that's all <laughs> yeah. about, but it exists for some reason that word also exists. But giving yourself the permission to use that word is so difficult. It's, it's taken so, so long. I was selling art and I still wouldn't call myself an artist and people would ask me what you do. And I would say, I make drawings that people buy, but <laughs> I couldn't say artist because like, uh, in addition to all the various things you said, like there's whether I deserve the label, there's, did I get the education because that's how I can get it. Uh, there is this other thing that maybe artist is a word that someone is supposed to bestow bestow upon me. Mm -hmm. like, it's a, it's supposed to be granted to me. Like people are like, because this word has these connotations with 
things like being a virtuoso or being right. a talent, just like the guitar, for example. So I I also played, I learned to play guitar with my friends in co- in university oh, cool. and I would play acoustic and I'd play bass because these guys were way more talented than me and I would stand in the corner. Oh, and my bass is so important, man. Come on, don't scream so short. Absolutely. <laughs> it is so important. But I would not give myself that label of guitarist because I was like, eh, I, not me, that guy. Yes, not <laughs> me. I'm just, I'm just... I'm just filling in like yeah, these, these yeah. Uh, little bits of silence in the back and you need something with very low uh, <laughs> sound to, to go through to keep the beat. That's that's me. But these guys are guitarists and I'm not. You're the rhythm section. <laughs> <laughs> so these these labels become difficult bec- and then you have to sort of overpower them and you have to you have to own it. Um, so uh, the utility is a good is a good reason. I, I still want to parse the difference between just artist and just illustrator. What, on, in which circumstance can one use one word but not the other? <laughs> I have no idea. Like it's it's so funny. Um, it's like how how do I describe? How do I like break that down? What I've would I have used one or the other term? I used to use illustration. I would say I'm an illustrator when I was creating something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for instance, if a, if a tech company hired me to um, create a mural in their office, oh, I'm an illustrator. I'm, you know, I'm going to take your vision. I'm going to like depict that. Um, oh, but I'm painting this painting, you know, of the, the skyline um, from the waterfront for myself. Hold on, that's art, you know, which of course are totally arbitrary distinctions. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's even irrelevant. It's funny. I haven't, you know, I'm the person who like, oh, my website, I haven't updated that in years, you know, <laughs> which <laughs> is, you know, just a joke. But uh, also like, I was like, wow, I actually didn't think about what, why I chose to distinguish those from one another, you know? Um, and if the distinction is arbitrary or actually meaningful. And I tend to think actually it's less meaningful than maybe I used to think it was. Mm-hmm. I feel like a part of that distinction comes from just frustration because there isn't a single catch-all word that we can use. Yeah. And there's just like, oh, this, this, and this, and hopefully this covers the, the gamut of the things I do. But I like what you said about Illustrator because this is how I also like to think of it. And uh, I, because I'm try- uh, I spent a lot of time trying to think about what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing these drawings? Why should I ask someone to buy them? And what does it mean that I ask someone to buy what I drew? And what does it mean that I enjoy this aspect more? That Mm -hmm. I drew it and now I want to sell it. Or I want someone to buy a print of it. Or I want it to be in a book. And versus someone asked me to draw something and then I went and I drew that thing. And of course, again, I'm being independent in that my best client work is when the client just says, hey, you do your thing. We just want you to draw. So here's what we want you to draw. Just do it in however you want. And so there's a lot of agency and a lot of independent creative uh, thrust to how I approach it. But nonetheless, I'm still an illustrator. And this is at least, this is my definition for it. This is not the truth, quote unquote, that uh, the... Imagining that both of them are working artists or working illustrator terms, like what is it to work as an artist versus yeah. what is it to work as an illustrator? I think that, and I just sort of parsed this in my previous conversation with Eleanor Doughty, 
in Seattle mm-hmm. that an illustrator is probably has the same toolkit and the same skill set as an artist, but the product they make is driven by someone else's commission and someone else's requirement. So there is an end goal that is pre-decided that this has to be in this grocery store or this has to be on the side of the street as a mural. And an artist wants to make something and then they make something and then they find a way to fit it into like, how can this be something that I can make people want? And I think I give myself that role that it's my job now Now that I've fulfilled my personal desire to draw this view of the mountains, now I have to think, why should anybody care? And that is the role of the artist in a sense to me in my world. This is bringing up two things. The reason they should care, right? The only reason to me, I think, is because you care, right? If somebody sees that you care enough to spend your time depicting, capturing, transmitting that thing back, that's a reason to care. And when people see you care, they really like, that's, that's the goal of the artist. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to propose in, in maybe I'll change my bio on my website, uh, is maybe changing from artist or illustrator to painter. Mm-hmm. And I like this and I'm just kind of thinking through this. This is, I'm, I'm pitching this to you. I haven't even thought it through yet. This is like happening right now as we speak, but like, what do you do? Oh, you're a paint. I'm a painter, which can mean so many things, right? Am I a house painter? Am I, you know, do I paint the inside <laughs> walls of apartments? Do I paint, do I paint the Mona Lisa? Do I paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling? Right. Yes. Like all those things. Like literally it's like the word painter has, you know, has so many like different de- depictions, high, high and low, you know, the most functional versus the most abstract and meaningless, mm-hmm. but it's all paint on a page. Right. And whether I'm choosing to like use that paint to create, um, you know, the most beautiful, astounding, challenging work of art ever, or whether I'm truly like, you know, touching up the wall behind me, I'm still a painter. Mm-hmm. And even I'll go so far as to like, think about, um, this, this professor, uh, also a Kansas city artist named Jim Woodfill, who teaches at the Casey art Institute, whose work I came in contact with a lot back in Kansas city. And he was like, I think he was maybe even the chair of the painting department. And what did he paint with two by fours? Uh, he electric electric lights wiring there was never he never picked up a brush his work was all constructions and fabrications of Mm -hmm. you know sort of like mundane construction objects but no he's a painter you know and like i believe it he was a painter you know even if he did never pick up a brush and never you know touched a, a pigment to canvas he was still painting with whatever material he was using um and so I think that's like a good, you know, maybe some some middle ground that kind of can catch all these terms in one. Yeah. Maybe we just stick to artists and they're okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, well, at least painter sets some boundaries on the medium that you're going to work with. You could be a digital painter yeah. still. You exactly. don't even have to be a traditional painter. But artist could be, I think artist could be musician. Artist yeah. could even be dancer. Artist could be any form of the word art and all the things we associate with. An artist could be making like a really great sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. But these two terms are interesting. Uh, not only because, uh, you know, this process of articulating it, like you're explaining 
just as you're thinking of it, the word painter and how, whether that might fit well, I think more than coming to the answer or knowing what the word is, I think this process of figuring out is this the right word or is that the right word? I think that process of uh, thinking is very interesting because yeah, that's you. what reveals certain motivations to us. Like mm -hmm. there is this implicit sense of firstly, which one of them makes us happier because I do have a reaction to these two words and the word artist makes me much happier than the word illustrator yeah. because I am simply uh, very iconoclastic and I like to not I like to feel that I'm not being driven by anybody else. I'm driven right. by my own motivation. And Agent. this is what I wanted to do. And then I convinced this person that they also want it. And therefore successful artist, but mm -hmm. artist not uh, so I, at least uh, this uh, one of these words fuels me and the other has this idea that now I have to wait for someone to give me an opportunity. And then give you notes and, and feedback and permission, right? Maybe, right. maybe it's a question of permission. Uh, you don't need permission to be an artist from anybody, right? You you are because you choose to be. Whereas an illustrator, it's a professional distinction where you somebody has asked you to do something and given you the permission to do that. Well, you know, screw your permission. Like I'm an artist. I'm going to go out and paint Tony Island <laughs> right now as we leave and, and neglect my other worldly needs. But. Uh, <laughs> But you could do that because you're an artist, you know? Absolutely. It's great to give yourself an agency. It's so important to remember that no matter what, like, and for me to keep reminding myself that no matter what in my day-to-day -day life is happening, that art, that input, that input becoming output and being a way of understanding the world is like, it's necessary. Like, it's, it's really something we need, I need, we all need. And gosh, I just want to keep doing it, right? Apologies for the slightly abrupt ending. Gavin had an appointment he needed to make immediately and neither one of us kept track of the time. Abrupt endings have characterized a few of the past episodes, but I find them a natural occurrence when you are recording episodes in the way that I do. With a free-flowing, non-rigid structure, you can never know which sparks will strike the conversation at what time and take it in which direction. Sometimes we have taken the longer route instead of the shorter, and always we have done it only because it was more fun. This is a unique gift of long-form conversation, and I am hesitant to discard its value. I know you appreciate it as well. With that in mind, I want to thank you, dear listeners, for your support all this while. The next episode is going to be episode 50 of the Sneaky Art Podcast. I had no idea I would make it so far. Episode 50 is an AMA style episode that is an Ask Me Anything episode and it is hosted by my friend and amazing artist Uma Kelkar. Uma is asking me questions pooled from listeners, past guests and our mutual friends and colleagues in the urban sketching community. I am both excited and supremely nervous to share this episode with you because it is me in the guest seat. Find links to all the relevant topics from today's episode in the episode description. Sign up to become a sneaky art insider or just to read the show notes from all the different things that Garen and I spoke about. 
Thank you so much again <laughs> for your time and your attention. I'll see you in the next one.